0: Oh yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show sponsored by Cheshire Impact on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. Cheshireimpact.com. Thank you. All right, yeah, I hit a button and we go live. Modern Mm -hmm. technology, love it. So, okay, my guest today, uh, when I looked at my calendar earlier and I saw I had a podcast, I was excited. And then I saw who I was going to chat with on the podcast and I got kind of like excited and like curious, but also like, ugh, like, I can't wait to have this conversation. So I want to introduce you to her. She is a growth marketer and I will call her a futurist. She She's probably a time traveler. Um, she's a founder. She's an indie maker. She's a writer, senior analyst at The Hustle. Stephanie Smith, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so so I heard you on a presentation. I don't even know where or when or why, but someone in one of my Slack channels was like, "Hey, you got to get on this webinar. Someone's talking right now and basically predicting the future." So I was like, "Yeah, I don't have anything better to do. Let me hop on this thing." And you were presenting, and you're gonna have to say like, "What even was it?" But like, you were presenting, and every single slide, I was like oh, that's actually a really good point. And it wasn't all good news. And I'm kind of like a good news all the time guy. So I was like, oh no, it's not good news. And then but I thought, but it's really well thought out. So I wanted to just get you on here. But the way we start every show is by passing you this. So here, hold on, it's heavy. Ugh. Okay, here you go. <laughs> this is Thor's hammer. Can you grab that's that? You yeah. got it? I got it. Okay, two hands. Good, Perfect. Okay, take Thor's hammer, and it is actually the real Thor's hammer here in New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> take that and smash for me some kind of myth, bogus strategy, just some misconception that you're seeing right now. And Help us set the record straight.
1: Yeah, so um, the presentation that you saw me on was one about the coronavirus. It's what everyone's talking about right now. So uh, I'm not the only one, but the presentation was focused on looking past the first order effects. So really, you know, there's there's certain things that the media and just people in general naturally gravitate to as they try to navigate uh, what is really an unprecedented, I mean, everyone loves that word right now situation, but True. but what's important about that word is just that like many people living right now haven't faced this before. Um, so I think one of the myths that um, people are are a little misguided on right now is that Uh, we're trying to use frameworks or tools uh, or approaches to to problems that we faced in the past for this problem. And and that's even, you know, in in some of the language people use, they're trying to say, like, is this a U-shaped recovery? Is it a V-shaped recovery? Because those are the types of recoveries that we've seen before in different downturns. And I think, you know, that's not the only example, but just people in general are are saying, oh, like, where have we seen this before? But unfortunately, in many of our lifetimes, we haven't seen this before. Yeah. Um, and so we're almost trying to, you know, that saying, like, fit a, a square peg in a round hole, um, because we're trying to emulate previous situations, which really are, are maybe have commonalities, but are, are truly very different to what we're facing right now.
0: Right. It's like, I, I mean, I, I keep hearing, like, the Spanish flu, or someone mm-hmm. got the Hong Kong flu, and they're trying to, like, Describe similarity. I, mean, I guess there's some value to like similarities. Of
1: course, yeah.
0: But I, I mean, i guess that goes awry if you just decide that well, we've dealt with this, or or how they dealt with it like 200 years ago when they didn't have iPhones or Zoom calls. This is how they dealt with it. That'll work here. Yeah, too.
1: yeah. Like, let me give you an example. So yeah. people people talk about the the pandemic in multiple ways because it's a multifaceted problem. So you have um, a health pandemic or a health crisis. Right. But then you also, you know, as many of us are, has become the main topic of conversation is a financial or economic crisis. And then there's other crises like supply chain crises, and then there's like border problems. There's all these things. Jeez. And and we're trying to, you know, in, in many cases fit like with the example of a financial crisis, we're trying to say, hey, how does this compare to 2008? But 2008, the, the causes of that particular crisis were much different than now. And therefore, the solutions will also be much different than this crisis. And so I think it's, it's important to, um, as I was trying to do in that presentation, is to not just look at this as like one type of crisis, try to match it to a previous crisis, and then therefore use the solutions to that crisis to then be the solutions to this one. Because I think this one is unfortunately just a lot more complicated than what we've faced in the
0: past. Right. I think I've been guilty of that. I, rem- I rem- recall the 2008 and I was even looking at like Delta stock to try to like, Ooh, I don't know. you know. <laughs> yeah. and back in 2008, it was terrible. But like to your right. point in a, in a juvenile way, Oh, well, what was it like? It was a crisis and stocks were low. Well, I guess this is a crisis and stocks are low, but you're right. Like if we, if we like, well, it only took, you know, it took them a couple of years of air travel and they recovered. Will it be the same for us? Maybe, but maybe not.
1: Yeah. And just to give that, that's a perfect example where, Um, You have a a normal financial crisis where you have a slow downturn. You know, in bad crises, it happens more quickly, but it's still pretty slow, right? Like people slowly lose their jobs, businesses slowly go out or under, um, and then as that happens, there's those second-order effects where you know there's less discretionary spending, people are saving more, etc. But that happens slowly, and so that's when you would see something like an airline get hit, but only to a certain extent, as just you know that fraction of people aren't traveling anymore or people right. in general are traveling slightly less. But then this in this case it's like, well, the first part of this saga is like no one's traveling. So that's completely different. Right. But then on top of that, people are kind of treating these um these airline stops for example as you know they're either gonna go back to normal or they're gonna go under. So we're almost betting that they stay alive so that we can get that upside. <laughs> yeah. But then in this in this totally. this scenario it's like, well actually well are we in a new world where airline travel may be completely different. Maybe there are certain regulations where people need to show up at the airport five hours earlier and less people want to do that. So they opt for domestic travel. Maybe um, whatever regulations need to be in place no longer make airlines profitable and therefore they can't even function the same ways. And some of them, even when things right. open up, can't um, operate profitably and therefore go under. So it's, it's just a completely different world that we're now in and it's not uh, I mean it's helpful to make comparisons but it's like let's think about what what are the fundamental differences today and what does that mean for tomorrow
0: right I I hear you 100% on that the new world thing as much as I want I mean I like Delta I don't know I like the brand (laughs) for some reason but as much as I wanted to recover I also like traveling too one of my worries is are they gonna make me do a bunch of goofy things like you know, mask, gloves, this. Like, they're gonna are they gonna wrap us in plastic and put us in a seat? Like, I no, I don't mind them getting rid of the middle aisle. Like nobody does. But there's other things where I'm like, maybe I might not travel right away, while the because I don't need to if the restrictions are gonna be super high. Maybe I wait. So maybe it's totally different. Um, or but but is it kind of like nine eleven? We had the same kind of thing where we didn't want to travel for a while. Maybe. It, compares to that or or is this the danger we're talking about comparing this to something else. Well
1: like- I think it's a, it's it's good to make comparisons. It's just good to think about how, you know, how the similarities may be true, but also what what's different here. And what's so different. So what I think is you bring up a great point with, with travel. So I actually saw the other day an article that I think it was Emirates, but it may have been another airline where they're now actually getting their air hostesses to wear hazmat suits. And that's just like it's one of those things where it's like that's <laughs> actually like practically a great you know, a great move for them to, to give safety to their their hostesses. But how are you going to feel going onto an airline when you see yeah. you're not having hazmat suits? You're like, what are what, what's going on here? Like, Where's
0: mine? Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> like, there's clearly a safety risk here, right? So yeah. there's there's things like that where it's just like, okay, um, how is this going to evolve? I also love traveling and, and have done it pretty significantly over the last four years. And it's like, I wonder when am I going to feel comfortable getting on a plane again? Um, yeah. And you talk, you know, even going to things like the what I mentioned about profitability. If you block off the middle seat, can airlines still be profitable, having two right. thirds of their uh, or a third of their revenue gone? And so you start to think about just uh, like what does this mean for the airline industry? And what all we know for certain is that some things will change. Yeah. Um, and I think you also make a good point that with something like 9-11, there was this like immediate change, which kind of jarred people. And then eventually you just start kind of appreciating or accepting that new normal. Yeah. And maybe, maybe in five years, we'll think it's just completely normal for airline hostesses to wear hazmat suits. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll think it's normal for, you know, there not to be middle seat. Maybe we won't. It's, it's, it's kind of just up to time to tell.
0: Right. They're like, okay, take off your shoes. We got some scanners. Some pictures <laughs> yeah. People don't want to see. And then, you know, you're on the plane and there's probably an air marshal. And we're, and I guess we've all kind of, I think time tends to kind of like, we forget things probably that we shouldn't, but sometimes we forget things as well. And maybe it gets us back to normal. So maybe there's a few changes, best case, right? A few health changes, but eventually we're all vaccinated or something. And then, and does it, does it do they, do they give the middle seats back? I mean, that, I guess that's a question, right? Do they ever, what do you think? Do they ever put those I back think, in because they need them for the, for the sales?
1: Well, yeah, I think absolutely. If there's, if there's a vaccine or anything that can kind of like certify that people are safe on, on an airline without that distancing, then yeah, from a profitability perspective, like there's no way that an airline wants to lock off that middle seat. And so right. as soon as they can put it back in, they'll be doing that.
0: So maybe just like we have those like TSA pre-checks, we have like a, wow, like it's amazing to think about like, oh, you have your Corona pre-check and you get to go through yeah. the aisle and you get to skip the, like the temperature scanner, you know?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think that will definitely, I mean, almost certainly for the short term have much more extensive processes where like, yeah. you know, you think back to before 9-11, you could go to the airport and just basically get on a plane within 20 minutes. Oh right? Yeah didn't have to go through this whole process and now we've normalized it and 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 that's just part of of the game and so I think at least in the short term there will be just much lengthier processes before you have to fly and then as we get safety certifications and stuff like that maybe some of that will disappear but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of it sticks around similar to what happened after
0: 9-11. For sure I remember as a kid like you could even go Go wait at the gate for Grandma, kind of thing. Like you could yeah. go out there and be like hanging out in the terminal.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: So wacky. <laughs> um, I don't even think. I don't even think they were metal detectors. It was just, just go out. You go go right to the gate. That's yeah. Great. Um, you me- you mentioned, uh, the well the first and second order effects. Talk a little bit about that. Like, is there a third order? Like, how many orders are there, and what is that concept?
1: Yeah. So it's just the concept that like. You know, when a pandemic happens or when any event happens, there's things that are like immediately impacted by that. And those are most of the obvious things that people are talking about. So even when we think about something like industries that are being impacted, you think about the airlines that we just talked about, you think about the box office, you think about oil companies as oil prices have completely plummeted, you think about like the obvious effects. But um, when you have something so significant like this, the downstream effects Um, are also pretty significant. They're just more downstream. And I think actually now that we're like two months in maybe uh, to this pandemic, we're starting to see some of that happen. And so you're seeing like uh, an obvious downstream effect um, is like as these companies lose out on on their revenues, they no longer can afford the same software, for example. So you're actually seeing a bunch of software companies start to lay people off um, because they no longer have the same revenue incomes. And as those people are laid off, you know, what happens to the innovation within those software companies? Do they have enough money to invest in R&D? So what what does that mean for the next couple of years of of the types of innovative products that are being created as most companies like lock down and focus on their more profitable units? Um, you saw the same thing happen, you know, in the last recession or previous recessions where you don't really get the full scope of what what has happened here until many years later.
0: Right, right. Yeah, the the first order we you can see it's like being on the lookout and thinking about what those second second ones are and and how that might affect you um yeah like you mentioned the software just you know if if this isn't happening then what or if people exactly. more people are doing zoom calls and you hear all the transition from the offices right facebook not going back for a mm-hmm. year google too then do they even need office space office space has become super cheap because no one wants them and then that whole market's Interrupted. Then, what happens when that market's interrupted It's a very interesting chain of effect.
1: Exactly. And I would just encourage people to. I mean, no one can pr- uh, predict the future. I certainly can't. But no, I
0: think you're pretty close. <laughs> pretty <laughs> just good
1: at ask it. those questions. Well, because that's the best yeah. way to at least attempt to understand the future is just to say, huh, like, um, let's let's acknowledge the immediate effects. But now let's think about yeah, some of those ripple effects. And okay, if this happens, what does that mean? right? What happens to these people? Or what happens to this, these companies, these countries even? Um, And start to think about in in some of those what ifs. Because I think that's when you start to uncover like, whoa, actually, yeah, what happens if all these companies move out of SF? What happens to rental spaces? What happens to residential spaces? What happens to those people? Where do they go? Um, What happens to those states? Um, And so I think it's important to just start asking those what ifs. Because that's, that's where you start to uncover some of these interesting uh, downstream effects.
0: Have, have you, through your own what-ifs, have you, have you bounced into any of those interesting secondary effects or these ripple effects that you think maybe we haven't really thought about?
1: Well, I mean, I think these are certain things that people have thought about, but one, one thing that I like to bring up about these downstream effects or, or just the virus in general is that, um, well, first and foremost, I think, what the virus did is basically take everything that was working uh in the world and then it um it kind of questioned like why are these things working as so and what i mean by that is like uh the world was was working in offices mostly like there was remote work that was growing but the world was working in offices because that's how we always had done it right um, and certain other things existed just because that's always how we had done it. you know the world was fo- uh, functioning a lot off of tradition and what's interesting to me is that the virus you know rightfully so uh, has made people think about what's most important oh what's most important is my health and my family and right. so I'm going to find any way to uh, order things or to get products I'm going to find any way to continue working and in most cases you're finding that a lot of people are are you know okay with disconnecting from tradition and starting to work online and starting to order products online and you know just in general like not doing things one way just because it's always been that way
0: yeah it kind of helps shake us up a little bit
1: exactly and so what comes with that is i think you're going to start to see a lot of companies that maybe we're seeing a lot of resistance in certain areas um no longer see that resistance if they really are just like the best approach to something. Um, so I do think you're going to see a wave of companies that, um, like, a, a very, like, tangible example is a lot of companies were getting pushed back, again, rightfully so in terms of privacy concerns. But mm-hmm. right now, privacy concerns are out the door because people just want to have something that, that works, right? right, that solves their problem. Right, yeah. Um, and so I do think you're going to see just, like, a change in the way that people are, are engaging with products. They're, not, they're more open to new types of products right now. Um, And that is where I think there can be a lot of opportunity for companies to just say, let's like actually not try to think about how we can make what our products did before work during this pandemic, but just completely rethink it, rethink, um, you know, what people really need. And so I think that'll be like a very uh, interesting kind of development over the next couple of years to just see how complete industries disappear and new industries evolve
0: out of out of that yeah let's talk about that because that was one of the parts i, I did catch in the presentation the, you had a couple slides where you're talking about you know how how your company what product you offered service you offered what, beforehand how are yeah. you doing are you helping are you hurting and then what what you foretell is going to happen afterward based on how they, they mm-hmm. fit. do you maybe talk about that
1: Yeah, so the the idea was the following. So a lot of people think about companies as, you know, in in terms of their revenue or in terms of their products, but I think the most effective way to think about a company is the problem that it's solving for someone. That is why they make money is because they're solving a problem for someone. Now, if that company is solving a problem for someone effectively um, and they are increasing either the amount of people they're solving that problem for Or how much they're solving a problem for someone—that's when they're they're going to be scaling their revenue, right? Um, And then the flip side is that if they if they're no longer really solving a pain point or that pain point is disappearing, you know they're going to be going down in revenue. Now, you have companies that were increasing before the virus, and companies that were decreasing before the virus. Now the virus shook that up, and at least in this temporary fold that we're in, some of those companies that were slowly dying are relevant again but we huh. need to ask the question is that you know is that permanent or is that not and then the same goes for companies that uh were growing and you know during this temporary scenario are either you know continuing to soar or uh you know faltering and and right. the ones that were doing well before and currently do, are doing well it's like that's a great company it's clearly solving a problem in both universes and then there's the, the flip side where Someone one was like doing Netflix,
0: bad. right? Like Netflix, it was solving problems. It's definitely still solving problems.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's ones that weren't solving problems and then aren't during the pandemic. Those companies are dead. But then there's. What the kind two. of examples
0: do you have for that? Like they weren't, they're on the decline. And then I don't know um, if you can think of any, but they're like. The so, decline. like, for a,
1: a great example, in my opinion, is is like residential office space where residential office space was was slowly becoming less of a commodity that people needed and then this just like put a nail in the head i mean obviously there there will always be space for residential office space in in, in our world but in terms yeah. of uh if you were a company in that industry you your growth prospects wouldn't be looking great uh, yeah. but then you have like these these interesting kind of dichotomies for co- companies that were doing well but are currently shut down and the companies that weren't doing well and now are. And so the, what I think is important is to for people to ask that question, It is the problem that I was solving before still a problem today? Yes or no and why? But more importantly, will it be solving a problem in this kind of like future that we live in? Because some of the stuff that we're experiencing right now is temporary, of course. Um, and so that's the way I would put it because I see, you know, t- many people who are, for example, saying like, this company is thriving. And it's like, well, this company is thriving because everyone's locked at home, but everyone won't be locked at home right. a, a year from now. And right. so you need to think about how these companies and the problems that they're solving evolve. Right. Um, and then that's really how I think you would you know, value a company in the future or try to determine if it's, if it's going to survive uh, in, in whatever that
0: new future is. Right. Like, oh, the toilet paper stocks are through the roof. Okay. (laughs) Well, they always will be, but, you know, or, or whatever the things are like, I think, what did I hear? There's like home gardening. There's all sorts of different industries that have some real pluses right now. Um, And that, that may be the case, but you're you're right. The, the dichotomy, the, the change of this thing was going downhill and then this happens and suddenly we're like, yeah, I could use some of that and bring it on over. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But yeah, it's, it depends on what someone's trying to, um, like what, if they're looking for short-term income or long-term income, if you're looking for short-term income, there are a lot of opportunities that exist just for the next, you know, six to 24 months. But if you're looking for it to build a long-term company, um, you need to think about whether that company solves problems, hopes the the virus.
0: Right. To, to your point, it's not like a, whatever's happening now is a temporary you know, boon for you if you're doing well, if, if not. Um, but then what is that? It's a third. It's like, it's not just one phase one and two. It's like, no, there is a third when this sort of lessens up and yeah. but we still have the learnings from having been in it. And now we're like, do I really need that?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then you have to think, you really have to think about the core of what uh, a business is solving. What I mean by that is, for example, airline companies, if you were to say like the purpose of an airline company, uh, a lot of people would say it, it's to transport people from one country to the other. Mm. But it's like, if, if you were to ask any person in the world, like what problems they're trying to solve, they would never say, I'm trying to get from Canada to the United States. Interesting. Uh, in many cases, right. there, the problems that you're solving are, you know, it, it's multiple for an airline company, but it would be like to be able to get to a business meeting. But in most cases it's to, to like have a form of entertainment, which is to travel and, and to experience the world. And what's the reason I bring that up is because if you are thinking very like pragmatically about just the, the very simple thing that a company does, you're missing the point, um, And you're missing the competitive landscape. And so for something like an airline, their direct competitors are airlines, but their indirect competitors are things like uh, RV companies or, mm. um, or even a movie theater, for example, because people are just looking for entertainment. So I could spend my week off going and driving down to Utah and, mm-hmm. and going to national parks, or I could get a flight over to Thailand and you know spend time there. But with this new world that we're living in, um, the shift in, in terms of like value prop versus like risk uh, in terms of getting that entertainment, may unfortunately shift away from airlines because people can get entertainment elsewhere Um, and so i think it's important to think from that lens where it's like really what's the core problem that a company is solving not just like the logistical approach of that company yeah
0: yeah like when i think of the vacation thing to your point thailand or or just driving somewhere right same for me it's like new hampshire i could we could go camping locally there's a white mountains nearby we could do that Mm -hmm. or we could go to the fly down to florida or something like but it's there are different options and yeah yeah and you you may see people weighing heavily eh, let's hold off on that crazy adventure for one more you know <laughs> yeah. next year we'll do that next year everything will be fine next year we'll do that let's go camping you know and it's a different choice people can make you're right looking at airlines as simply people movers is not like that's not the result that's what they do the result is either you know, um, they've increased the relationship in the business transaction, you know, or they've increased your level of fun because you get to go somewhere you are definitely not near and you can't really drive to. Exactly. So they're they're like, they provide those things. It's not the fact that they moved you. It's the fact that they opened Mm -hmm. a new world for you or they helped you close your biggest deal. That's where those kind of things I can see still closing. I mean, there's only so many sales calls you can do on Zoom. Sometimes you need to shake hands, but maybe not.
1: Yeah, but that's a great point. So, for example, like when you talk about airline competitors, would, no one would ever say like a better CRM tool is a competitor to an airline? Right. But if you really think about the uh, yeah, like the problem they're solving, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Right. Maybe nothing will ever replace the handshake. But when you think about like for certain people who do business travel and what the airlines provide is like a very the quickest way for them to get to their clients so that they can close a deal effectively. Well, maybe a CRM could do that. Maybe, right. right? Like, so it's it's important to think about what these companies are actually doing and whether there are, you know, adjacent, even industries that actually could could serve the same problem, um, and how even just changes in in this virus impact people's willingness to engage in other industries, and then look for some of these alternatives.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a practicality of using a Zoom meeting like this, right? And and I I was am I my old time? I was Zooming before COVID, right? Like my company's yeah. remote. I was doing that like, I feel like I'm doing more Zoom. And so I, I think it's interesting to see what happens in phase three and like in the next phase when this sort of is, we're going back to the new normal, which is, do people want to get off of Zoom because they remember being on it so much? Or do you kind of think, well, yeah, I could send my team over to you know, New York or we could just Zoom you know, and practicality of that. I don't know.
1: Well, what I think is interesting is that this is giving everyone a chance to test it. And so there was many companies that were like, I would never set like do a zoom call to close a deal because they think that that client would think of them as like, you know, not legit or not thoughtful or whatever. And so they would just never have even tested it. And similarly, it's probably true that some the person on the other side who who is looking to like engage in the sale appreciates that in-person environment. But now we've got this opportunity to to show both sides that it can right. work. And of course, some people will go back to to the in-person stuff later. But it's kind of like shaking things up to, in a way where we at least got to test it and show that like, oh, maybe you can actually close a sale. And there will be some fraction it may be large or maybe small that will stick with that because they they're just like why would i go <laughs> all the way to london for a day when we can just hop on this zoom call
0: yeah save us all some time let's just let's just finish this now you're yeah. right there, there's there's some definite changes um, but you're right it does sort of give us the reset button to be able to decide what's what could you could you talk to the economy cuz i know you you've you've smashed this before and, I, and I've heard you talk about it, but I think we, it's almost like it's a person. It's like Mr. Peanut, who I think they
1: killed. <laughs> yeah.
0: And now it's like the baby peanut. Oh yeah,
1: the baby nut, yeah.
0: Like baby Yoda, baby nuts. Uh, yeah. Maybe there's like a thing, like there'll be just babies of everyone. But mm-hmm. like, it's almost like the economy has a top hat and a, and a monocle and we're all like, oh, the economy, like we know him or her, but it's mm-hmm. not really that way, right? Like what, what is like the economy?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something that, drives me crazy because it's something like I get caught up in in using the term and it confuses me when it's used in, in this kind of yeah like pie in the sky way where like what is the economy and the economy it depends exactly how it's used but what's important to understand is that the economy is like with the the example of the U.S. it's like 330 million people making decisions right and some of those are forced upon them and some of them you know are are very like individual decisions, but like, yeah. that's very important to understand. And so, you know, when you see the other disjointed thing that I struggle with as well is like, the economy does not equal the stock market too. So a lot of people mm. see like value the economy as exactly like what they see in the S&P. Um, and then they, they use that to talk about like the overall economy of like how, how a country is doing. And then that's what creates a, like a huge disconnect because that's not always true. But I think really first. I
0: mean, is that kind of an indicator, though? Or it can
1: it? be, but it's in this, in especially in this environment, it really is is becoming disconnected. Because you think about something like the S and P, it's five hundred of the biggest companies in in the United States, and so it's like mm-hmm. if those companies um, during something like this are able to convince their shareholders, all they need to do is convince their shareholders that their share price will be higher in the future. Right. right. And so it, even if they're having troubles currently, if they can convince the shareholders that they're, the price of their stock uh, is going to be worth more in two years, people will buy. Um, right. And so it doesn't necessarily have a direct reflection on, you know, unemployment or uh, how many goods and services are being sold throughout the country during that time period. And so there really is a disconnect. Um, because the stock market is forward-looking, but it's also only a portion of the companies within a country. Um, And it's, again, it's also a lot of speculation versus something like um, the GDP of a country and how that's changing. That is a reflection of how many goods and services are actually being sold or, or bought during that time period. But even if you use a GDP number, what I think is important is, again, people try to say, like, oh, we think the GDP is going to be X, next quarter, or next year, or in 2020, Um, and then they use that to determine, like, should I invest in a business, or should I start a business at this time, Um, or is this industry going to survive, and what I think is important is to just break down the sense of, like, the economy being this, like, again, like, gray amorphous thing to, oh, it's 330 million people making decisions. And when you understand that, you can start to ask yourself questions like, okay, what's happening with those 330 million people? Like, are people losing their jobs? Has their sentiment changed? Um, Do they no longer want to engage in certain products uh, or industries? Um, And you can also start to map them out into different groups, right? So not all uh, 330 million people are the same. Some people are much older, some people are younger. There's people in the workforce, there's people who aren't in the workforce, There's people who run businesses there's people who work for businesses there's banks who lend money to businesses there's suppliers and manufacturers and it's you know the economy is a very complex entity and so when you think about it in this amorphous way it just becomes confusing mm. and hard to under like hard to understand these large or or small movements in the economy because you're not actually thinking about what that really is composed of
0: right you know, a big aha for me was when you were talking about how the top 500 companies in the country may or may not be having an issue right now. I mean, some of the travel ones sure are, but you know, a lot of them are the ones like the Googles and the Facebooks who are giving people off on Friday and they're, yeah. they're, they're still paying salaries or doing this or doing that and doing all these like really cool newsworthy things. Meanwhile, like the restaurants are obliterated exactly. and the restaurant workers are obliterated. So you might have, it's almost like the iceberg, right? You see all these companies on the top and they're big and, and the stock price is following that, but down below, there's all this craziness that isn't necessarily reflected.
1: Yeah, and I'm just gonna How pull up- It
0: helps so much with like a restaurant. And what's interesting is you know you hear um, some of them, oh, now we can have four tables outside. I can't rehire my people back to, to staff four tables. You know? Or
1: exactly.
0: To, there's all sorts of things underneath it.
1: So the S&P is a conglomeration of 500 or so companies, but within the S&P, um, if you compare the like the stocks today versus the stocks 10 years ago, it is uh, the value of the S&P is made up much more strongly of just a few stocks. And it's Mm -hmm. those like FANG stocks, Amazon, Google, Facebook, whatever, those make up a much more significant part of the S&P than in the past. And so when you look at the S&P as an indicator, it's, it's not really an indicator of the overall, you know, economic climate it's it's an indicator of those few companies and how they're doing and to your point a lot of those companies are effectively monopolies in in, in some sense and actually during a, an economic downturn like today these companies that are have hoarded cash for many many years are actually better off in many cases because they're able to buy distressed assets and mm. and companies like you're seeing you will see Microsoft Amazon google facebook all of them acquire a ton of companies in the next year um because they can do so at a cheaper valuation and that's so a really good point yeah what, so what other the
0: things you see like as a result of that that, that we can probably in think terms of owner like that
1: uh, I, in terms of what specifically
0: yeah like the future like what what kind of things do you see um coming around the bend um Great point around acquisitions. There's gonna be a lot of companies barely hanging in there. These big motherships swooping in, getting them for like pennies on the dollar. Any other kind of predictions you're seeing around different industries, or just
1: yeah? Well, in general, I think this is like an obvious one, but I think uh, reskilling is going to be uh, like there's a the guy from CB Insights has a saying that it's like things happen slowly until they don't, or something like that. They (laughs) happen slowly and then suddenly. Um, and so you're seeing a, you know for a long time automation has been uh, increasing in terms of its penetration throughout the world. Um, but as I was saying before, there there's certain things that we're getting pushback that during a situation like this, that pushback is you know subsides and then something is able to to really make its mark. And so automation, for example, as you're seeing many restaurants um, utilize different robots or robotic tools to, to actually, Um, still be able to um, engage or or stay alive Um, and those things will not disappear you're seeing the same thing with um, companies doing stuff like curbside pickup and using a lot more automation to process their payments and and also their deliveries and so unfortunately or fortunately you can look at it as a two-sided coin uh, robots are stealing our jobs but robots have always stolen our jobs Mm -hmm. The, the most obvious example is is the atm which stole the job of a bank teller Um, but it's not like those, that disrupted, you know, everyone's life and and there was no longer jobs, new jobs get invented. But unfortunately, pissed off
0: bankers, (laughs) these damn machines.
1: Exactly. But unfortunately right now we, what, what normally happens is you have a bunch of people, um, lose their jobs, but it's slowly, right. As we were talking before, like robots, take over a a fraction of an industry and they continue to do that for a while. And as that's happening, you're just naturally seeing new types of jobs get added to the market. Education systems get, um, you know, pivoted so that they're, they're helping people get those new types of jobs, but it's a slow process. But in this case, I think you're going to see a little bit of, uh, you know, it's going to be disjointed where uh, a lot of people lose their jobs more quickly. There's not enough, uh, Quick reskilling to get those people into the places that they need to be or to have the skills that they need for this new kind of more automated tech focused environment. More and so virtual I think there's,
0: and yeah.
1: yeah. I think there's just going to be a lot of companies uh, that emerge. There already are that focus on reskilling people so that they can still participate in, in this kind of accelerated tech focused economy.
0: The reskilling is an interesting thing to think about, and you're right. I mean, the factory came around, you know, the watermill, and they're like, "Oh, you're taking jobs from me and my ox." But it's like it's so much better. And then um, they've always done that. I've definitely heard that the progression, you know, robots tend to take over those uncreative jobs. You know, that we'd rather be off doing something creative, anyways. And so as they take over the uncreative things, it gives us more and more freedom to do the things that robots are terrible at which is problem solving and thinking
1: yeah and what's really interesting is that i think there is a positive here in some ways in in some of this tech penetration because you're seeing um you're seeing countries that are you know have longer histories like america um in in my opinion get uh, a little bit pulled back in terms of tradition because Mm. we have certain infrastructure in place and therefore it's harder for us to to uplevel or edit that, you know, infrastructure to new infrastructure. Like what? Uh, so a great a great example is something like uh, something like cell phones in in Africa. So the, a lot of people, you know, in in America had like internet, and then they had dial up, and yeah. you know, then they went to Wi-Fi, and then now like we have um, you know four G or whatever internet. But um, some something like a country in Africa like Nigeria. They skipped all of that, and they actually had like people using 4G internet before oh. many people in America did. And it's not because they are more technologically advanced. It's because when you have infrastructure in place, it's harder to replace it I with new it. infrastructure, whether it's tradition or whether it's just like the, the effort that's needed to, to remove something and put something new in. Um, when you're starting from scratch and you have a blank slate, you choose the best option. Yeah. When you aren't starting from scratch, you are leveling up two options, and you tend to have uh, like an affinity towards what you know. Yeah. And so the, um, another example of this, contactless payments in Asia are huge. Like Everyone uses contactless payments, even in places like India. I was in India in 2019, contactless payments everywhere. And you would think a country like India, like, Contactless payments, like how are they so much further ahead? But it's it's no, it's it's because they don't people don't have credit cards in the same way, so they're not replacing credit cards
0: with oh. contactless
1: payments. They're just going straight to contactless payments.
0: So the, there's definitely a benefit to them. I mean, I've heard it like in the in the tech world, like like technical debt that you have that you have to yes, overcome.
1: exactly. You,
0: you have all this backbone of like the old fourteen four modems. You're like, ah, uh, how do we get to cable? I don't know. We like, <laughs> Yeah. I think, you know, like NASA and like the, the nuclear missiles are still running off of like little DOS, Apple, whatever machines. Mm-hmm. And it's like, those are the whole Y2K thing, right? All the old, these old systems, you can't just exactly. replace them. Um, so yeah, what do you do? Interesting though with the contactless payments and just some people being able to skip right to things. Is that ever a problem? Like, is it a problem in Africa to go from, you know, zero to, you know, four? 4k and i mean you skip the aol phase you skip the 144. <laughs> you don't get to tiptoe into it you go you're like here you are you're online.
1: line yeah honestly i i don't know i don't think so though because it's not about like skipping steps in that case it's not yeah. like this technology isn't ready it's like it's ready and they're going with the best option available versus um you know when we take these baby steps it's because we're we're just like slowly getting pulled back by, by right. what we're used to Right. Um, so no, I think actually in many cases, like the U S would benefit from having, you know, completely contactless payments. It's just, um, you know, a lot of people aren't ready for that and they're, they're happy to stick with what they know.
0: Right. I guess it'd be kind of like an old person thing to say to be like, well, you know, before you get this iPad, you got to play on my Apple IIe over here. So you really <laughs> learn to appreciate like kids today. No, they just pick up the iPad and they're like on the internet and they're good. So yeah. right I don't I don't think there is much to I mean there's maybe some appreciation of what what you have but other than that it's like to be able to be immediately productive on that tool is awesome
1: Yeah and it's, it's I've heard some people talk about this interesting question which is like um you see old people and you see they they often say stuff like you know like people never like they, they don't know any facts today or or they don't know how they don't have a long attention span or And, and these things are true. Like there's, there's data behind this that young people struggle to have the same attention span. Um, they don't know as many like traditional facts because they don't need to. And so there's this interesting like question where it's like, okay, does it make sense to, um, have someone learn certain things that we once thought were important if Mm -hmm. they, if they aren't anymore. And, and I can see arguments for both sides where it's like, you should want to have, uh, a dynamic brain that can have a long attention span and all this stuff, but maybe, maybe it's actually not necessary anymore. And, and maybe with the tools that we have, the fact that you can literally, um, Google anything at, you know, at any second, maybe actually the things that we focus on as people change. It's unclear, but that's, what's interesting. And I, I remember I was in a chat the other day where someone was like, I wonder what will, um, what will be like when we're old. Because, yeah. you know, old people are always going to, again, hold on to, to how they lived life or how, what yeah. they do. Um, and I wonder what the things are that are happening today that we think are really innovative um, are going to seem really outdated in the future. And, you know, young people will be like, gosh, like old people just like always want to use like 5G. <laughs> and, like they don't want to go to this new system or, or whatever. They always want to Google something, but really they should just be, be like doing X, you know?
0: Right. Um, so I think
1: right. that'll
0: be interesting to see. Or 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 the, you know, the people that are like, I don't want an implant. That sounds scary. Like
1: <laughs> yeah, gram, <exactly. laughs> grandpa,
0: everybody's got one. Look, we can talk instantly right now in our heads if we have one of these things. But like, I want my head back. <laughs> right. I don't want to talk to you in my head. <laughs> like, I want to physically write you a letter. Oh God, that's so old school writing me a letter.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they'll be like, why like grandma stop sending me a Facebook message? And it's like what <laughs> you know like when like now that seems like just like the most obvious thing but eventually there will be completely new technologies
0: um i you know that's true and it feels like it's true but at the same time i kind of feel like i'm the youngster i'm inheriting the the world and there's old people and then there's young people but i guess that keeps changing right and it keeps progressing where there are new younger people and then the things that you thought were cool and hip, I guess, it, I guess the way to check that is to, is to figure out what is the latest social app and do you understand it? You know, and that <laughs> yeah. kind of clues you in. You're like, oh yeah, I got 30,000 views on TikTok. I'm all good. Or it's like, TikTok, what's that? I haven't heard about that, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I, what I loved is I listened to a podcast. So at The Hustle, we have a podcast called My First Million and they interview, yeah. they bring people on. And one of the guys recently was James Altucher. Yeah. I haven't really heard of him before, but I think most people know of him. And he was just talking about different things he does. One of the things he does is every day he just comes up with new ideas, not because he's trying to like uh, go and build these businesses, but just to keep his brain fresh. And what I loved is he's like a fifty-year-old guy, and he is using TikTok. He's like, he's like, I want to build up my TikTok following. I want to using that app. I don't, I don't use TikTok. That's how you know again that I'm not in the like the full like young sphere um but i love that when when people who are older are not necessarily stuck to to what they know and they're open to like whatever is coming out now right
0: and being open to it um james is crazy i remember i think i heard him on the joe rogan podcast uh yeah, he's got crazy hair crazy ideas <laughs> yeah. keeping it real he'll he'll be a 12 year old even when he's 80 exactly um, but yeah it's interesting I think one of the things I bumped into the other day was one of the only constants is change, right? And as much as mm-hmm. maybe you like how it is now, it's going to change. Like before COVID, yeah. I mean, I went on a cruise and I remember doing a meeting in Atlanta, and I like it. I'm like, I'm kind of cool with it the way it is. Let's just keep this the way it is. But no, it like it's constantly the world is constantly in that flux state.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think even with this, it's it's. I don't know if you've been finding the same thing. I've gotten so used to this like COVID era and how I'm living now that I don't even know what it's going to be like. I think there's going to be a little friction to even go back to like, whatever the opened up world is. And so, like you said, it's just, we're constantly changing and we just need, it's, it's beneficial for anyone to just like fixate to that. versus yeah. fixate to anything that they think is fixed.
0: Yeah. it The, at first you hate it and then you eventually adapt to it. At least that's how it was for me where first I'm like, oh, God, no. And I mean, everyone who was like wanting to avoid people was like, c- you know, there's memes. I'm like, they're celebrating, like, yes, stay at home, read a book, be stuck at home. Like, perfect. Nobody can bother me. Perfect. You know, but exactly. like, then there's the roommate who's like the people person who's like, no. We're going to play Scrabble. Like, can we, can we talk? Um, so that's where I was. So it, it took some, some time. But then, you know, you, you reminded me, because as you adapt, there are some things you start to like about it. You're like, well i get more time with the family or i get more time to talk to people i care about maybe if if you can um, you know at least in person or if not virtually and is there something missing from that um, or is that an old concept you know like for me i feel like there's another layer to that that in person physical contact even if you're not contacting you're just like face to face zoom is close but there's something about that proximity i don't know and that could just be me being one of the old people we were just talking about. But I don't no, know.
1: I don't think it's just you. I've So I've worked remotely for four years and I think mm-hmm. that we, we I shouldn't say we, but people who work remotely have solved a majority of the problems as it relates to remote work. But that is the one thing that is still not, I, I don't think it's there yet. Um, yeah. And that's again, coming from someone who's done this for years. I think what what I'm a little undecided on is whether it even can get there i feel like a lot of people are trying to solve that problem um one of the things that i would say is is wrong about a lot of the solutions is it's trying to like recreate the office Mm. in a remote environment and like like recreate the serendipity and things that happen in, in the office and trying to make that digital i don't know if that ever is going to to quite work maybe it will right um but i do agree that it's not quite there but an interesting thing that isn't happening right now um But normally happens is when you work remotely, you you focus on your work, you do your job, maybe you don't get as much of that like classic social interaction with your work, but then you have so much more flexibility to get social interaction outside of your work. So it's funny that I've heard a bunch of people who weren't working remotely saying like, I'm going crazy, like remote work is not for me and me and many other people who have been working remotely are saying like, no, 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 this is not like normal remote work. We're also going crazy. Normally you have outlets outside of work that you can get some of those. um, Huge point.
0: Yeah, it's a huge point. Right. Same here. Like, um, And I actually have an office, so the the checks go there, and I get to just get out of the house and get out of my PJs. But at the same time, a lot of it's remote. And you're right. It's remote, but we have the outlets, the in-person outlets that we can normally tap on so this kind of puts everyone back in the same spot. Maybe the remote workers are better at being remote. And the productivity, that learning curve, that'll just have to happen for the people that haven't been remote. They get to learn, hey, you get you're actually much more productive remote, usually, if you can set up your own space and you can figure out that system. But you're right, you still need that kind of something outlet, um, especially if, if you personally value the social side and that's what fuels you. You need some way of doing that. And I know there's some really ingenuitive things where people are having like goofy um zoom calls i feel like i'm just a little too old for that because all my friends have kids now and so they're all doing like zoom calls with their kids but like hey let's all we've had some happy hours in fact i probably had too many happy hours <laughs> every group i'm with is like let's have a happy hour and you Fair schedule enough, them yeah. and you're like okay I need, a, I need like a sober week here yeah but i don't know there's all these sort of things happening people are trying things to find a way to hit that hit that mark
1: yeah, I think just in general humans are social animals and I don't think every I don't think we'll ever get to the point maybe in like many many yeah. like generations we'll get to the point where people truly want everything virtual but I do think that naturally we're social people and you need some of that in person contact but I do think what we might see is if many many more people go remote you actually just get your social contact well outside of work yeah. And so if everyone's remote, maybe there's more co-working spaces, but or maybe you just go and do more hobbies that, you know, in your local area and that's where your like your friends are. I think that's what kind of what I meant by people trying to take an in, uh, in-person office environment and put it online where it's like people normally look to their co-workers for their social interaction oh, good call. Um, and their yep. friendships, yep. which is fine. I still feel like very close to many of my virtual co-workers. But I also look for those friendships outside of work because I think that's easier to do with that in person.
0: Totally, totally. Yeah. One of the things we've done at our company is uh, once a year we get together in person. Um, we give a silly name, the main event, because the first one was in Maine. And so we have an oh, e, e on the good. end of it. And what's yeah. crazy is like, subsequent ones are like main event charleston main event bahamas so it makes no sense to outsiders but like that's cool that's our secret code but Mm -hmm. i find it so interesting that um you get in person and it's just you you can build a stronger relationship with someone sometimes i'll i'll see someone it's almost like like a weird tv show you see someone in the airport you're like hey you know like steph good to see you and you're like actually we've never met like we've maybe worked together for like a year virtually but we've never actually met but i feel like i've talked to you all the time exactly. and you actually meet in person and, and you have but you haven't but that can kind of you can grow relationships more that way it'll be interesting my question to you vr does vr do you think that takes a step forward because people are are remote and then they're like how do we get this sort of proximity around each other
1: I'm unsure about vr serving the purpose that you're talking about It's just because the the reason the office works is the serendipity of just being around people all day like if there's even like a connection when you're like working at your laptop and there's someone working like 6 meters away from you and you're not talking at all but like you're around each other all day right and so the reason that zoom meetings are so much less social even if you try to make them social is because it's a fixed time frame that you're talking to someone and it's planned And you're like, even if it's social, it's like, okay, this is happy hour, right? There's no, there's no serendipity and there's no, uh, just like general, like, uh, like spatial proximity to people. And so the only way that would work, I think with VR is if you actually, which maybe someone should build this, like have like a VR office or VR space that people go and that's where they work from all day and they're around people and you can like walk around it or you can, I don't know, (laughs) but you know, Like, that's the reason that I think, though, that whether it's VR or a normal Zoom app, if you're just using it for, like, your daily calls, it's not really that much different. Like, I can still see you um, right now. It's more of just that, like, physical proximity and also the serendipity of, like, running into someone throughout a day, which I think is lost.
0: Yeah, it's almost, like the virtual like ready player one type login and then you have this whole environment. And I mean, that's where people say that we're going anyways. Yeah. Um, so it be interesting to see if that fills some of the gaps, but I was also thinking about the the funny thing where you have like a fake robot dr- driving itself around the office and that's like Bob, <laughs> you know, and they're like, Oh, yeah. and he has like a little camera. It's like, Hey guys, how's it going? You're like, <laughs> so it's a, it's like a robot version of him. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's so funny.
0: So anything anything about this excite, like, is is there some pro to this? And I know we've kind of hinted at a couple of them. What are the, what are the pros? What
1: let's make some lemonade. What do you think? No, I think, I mean, obviously this is a really sad time and, and a lot of negative has come out of it, but I think a lot of positive has come out of this. And I think it, it really has been, well, from a mental standpoint, for many people a, a reset to be like, what matters to me? Where do I want to invest my time and my, my money? And, and just, my life, but then on top of that, at a more macro level, you really are just seeing um, completely complete industries be reset by this. So the a really good example that a lot of people are talking about right now is just schools, right? So, yes. what was our schooling system, especially post-secondary, was that the most effective way to uh, to educate people, and not just from uh, from like an, a curriculum standpoint, but also like a numbers standpoint, right? Colleges in the past. Were um, up until COVID were extremely restrictive, right? In in terms of you know literally their admissions process, only the richest and the smartest people can get into, and get these these diplomas. Yeah. And now you're seeing a reset where everything's going online. People are questioning whether education should cost that much, and then you're seeing a lot of uh, incumbent or sorry not incumbents you're seeing a lot of incumbents like potentially go out of business or have to rethink their model. And then you're seeing a lot of new players that are digital come in and start to offer. People are opening their minds to this concept that like education doesn't have to be super expensive and it can also be in flux. It doesn't have to be four years. And so that's a really interesting industry that I think we're going to see a lot of change in. we already are. Um, But that's a great example of where, you know, I think some good is happening um, when we have these like fundamental resets.
0: You know, like you said, it, it's a good it's a good time and place for people to think about what they really want out of certain situations. Um, the The school thing, I, I saw a tweet. I would love to give credit to the person that I, I retweeted this, and it was basically saying that universities have this really tricky problem right now.
1: Oh, I think it was Naval, where they Is need that to prevent. That's funny. We
0: saw the same tweet. Tweet. Yeah, I mean, let me pull that guy up. Um,
1: yeah. yeah, I think it was something you, along the lines game? of like, they're trying to because right now they're kind of in this like awkward middle point where they're trying to like convince people that digital education is, is like an option, but then they're going to, whenever schools open up, they're going to have to convince them that actually in person is, is like worth their money or something like that. But he was, he was like, it's like trying to sell your uh, competitors product.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No that Yeah. It was like, I can't even find it, but it, it was, yeah. Um, universities have to convince, well, both we'll both we'll take a, a guess at it. If you could find it, that'd be great. Um, universities have to convince students that they can get tons of value from them online, paying the same amount. Like they have to convince them that it was worth paying like the 80 grand or 40 grand
1: yes, exactly for
0: the sa- to get that same education they were getting a person online. And then as soon as everything opens back up again, they need to convince them. No, 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 no. JK about online. You need to <laughs> yeah. come back in person. It's like, in a, they're, yeah, they're competing against themselves. It's crazy. Yeah,
1: that, that was exactly the tweet. I think it was Naval. I'm just looking through. I can't find it either. Maybe he deleted it. Who knows? But that was, that was the same tweet that I, I was thinking about.
0: Convince. Yeah. I, like what a, what a wild uh, thing to convince them. It, but that's really a challenge though. I mean, a, a lot of people I talk to in the education field, I mean, they're able to move things around, but is it worth, I mean, gosh, universities and colleges, so much money, but yeah. Or you just use, you know, SNHU or Phoenix or do one of those virtual things and be done with it. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. What, what do you think yeah. shakes up after the education? Do we just forget about it? We all go back to the way we were, or does it, I don't know.
1: This. I think it kind of depends on how long this lasts for. Um, but I do think if, it, if True. these closures last through to the fall, when a lot of those universities are, are thinking of reopening. I saw, I saw a tweet, or maybe it was a, an email the other day that showed like the percentage of colleges um, and what, what their plans are as of mm. today. And only a very small portion of them were like, we're going to close. Uh, a bigger but still small portion was like, we're going to go fully online. And then most of them were like, we're opening up in the fall, most of them. Mm. And it'll be interesting because yeah. if they can open up, I think they can still continue to kind of play this card of like the in-person aspect of networking and all this stuff is really worthwhile. But if they have to stay online, I think it's really, it's going to be very hard for them to continue to convince people that their right. education should cost that much. And so I think we'll see, we'll see if there, what happens in the fall, but I think people are, already starting to question
0: that i had a call today with um, a really smart student who's like in school right now and was kind of doing like a mentorship thing freshman in school and and we were talking tech we were talking about salesforce and crm and all the stuff that i'm in and there's like free training in this thing called trailhead where you go in there they'll give you your own salesforce account to just actually build and 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 i was telling her I was, a lot of people like if they have a cert and they have some points in the, in the learning system, they, they could easily get a job just doing the thing. Like, I don't even care if you have a degree at that point. So really, it, you know, I think to your, your earliest point, it's going to distill down, what are the core things you really need to get from that kind of an experience? And can you get them anywhere else? And if not get them there, maybe go freshman year, but then bounce, yeah. like all the smart people that have started doing startups and like bounce and go explore and build and work. I don't know. Stanford yeah, and I think
1: also tied to that is like right now, less so than before, but still it's true where like a, a good uh, diploma will get you places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that changes over time as more people recognize, and they're starting to recognize this with like you know all of the like Stanford dropouts that have started some of the biggest companies in the world. Sure. Um, that perhaps that diploma no longer has as holds as much credibility. Um, and that people stop caring about that, and then there's going to be companies, and there already are companies like this which develop almost like um, testing for companies to determine if like someone is a good developer or not yeah. and that may replace the diploma i I listened to a podcast the other day with the guy at gosh it might have been code academy or one of those um, platforms. His name is Thomas Cuello, I think, but um Anyway, he's actually the author of that. If you, if you read that like, super famous Medium article about COVID, it, it was the one that was like, you must act now or something. Oh, geez, um, no. Anyway, it got like millions of views. But he, he, was, uh, he brought up a very good point that um, for their platform, what they're trying to navigate is that currently, like, people are not actually willing to pay for learning. Mm. They, they pay for a diploma or for certif- certification because that is what gets them somewhere, right? And that's what people are looking for when, when they're hiring. But I do think that will change, and as that changes, as what people, hiring managers, are looking for changes, that disrupts the system, that is providing the certifications, there's no longer demand for it, um, and then they, they, need to, they need to pivot. And so I do think that we're gonna see that, I think it's accelerated by COVID, but I think that was kind of inevitable anyway.
0: Yeah. People don't pay for learning. They pay for, for getting somewhere for the actual same conversation. It's the same. It's that it's the other effect that they get from it. It's yeah. not the people on the plane. It's not being at university. It's like, I'm going to meet people and have fun. I'm going to party. I'm going to yes. get a good job when I get out or my parents will leave me alone. Like it's all those other <laughs> exactly. things and it reminds me of like the language learning people don't really usually learn a language to learn it they learn it to either know the culture better or for me it'd be like to connect with the people when I'm there and to have a little moment with someone if I'm polite to them like that's why I would go through the arduous process of listening to that cd for hours on end it's not
1: exactly not
0: because I like that
1: yeah yeah so I think the education space is like one of the is going to be one of the most interesting to right. to watch because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to these colleges. They're huge. Um, yeah. And what happens to like donors and to people who like are graduates of, of, you know, Harvard and, and will Harvard still exist maybe, but in what form we're not yeah. really sure.
0: Yeah, f- for sure. This is, I think this is a good side of it because I think though, I mean I've been kind of like dark on college for a long time just because I like barely survived it and then yeah like realized it was all my internships that actually were the uh, that had nothing to do with the school that is where I learned you know and I started getting my way um but it gave me a zone I guess of time to not have responsibility but yeah it's like the the cost and um and what can you what can you get out of it huh it's just it's really interesting to see what happens I think the fall really matters I think I'm just going to put my thumb out there, but I'm like, to your point, whatever they do in the fall semester will signal like, and I can see why they're opening. It's probably pretty smart on their part. We're opening, they'll do a million masks and tarps over each student, like Ghost and Pac-Man, but like they have to reopen so that they get that physical thing in, in there. Otherwise people are going to form a habit, you know, and then just prefer something else.
1: Yeah, exactly. If they don't open in the fall, which I'm not saying is is necessarily the best decision from a safety perspective, but if they don't, from a business perspective, I think that people will look for alternatives, find that those alternatives are actually okay, if not better, uh, and then just stick with those.
0: Right. Well, this is crazy. I could talk to you all day about these things in the future, but the question, the next question I have really have is like, who are you? Like, who are you as a person? How did you become this sort of all knowing Oracle of, of the future and analyst of, of the present. Um, can you take us back like little Steph days? What was it like being you? Did you, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Like, who are you?
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I can't remember what I wanted to be growing up. Um, I think it changed all the time, which really speaks to like the fact that I, I enjoy a lot of things and that's why I've like my career has been, uh, across many different industries or jobs. Um, I do remember way back because uh, it was such a big part of my childhood. I played a lot of chess. So my childhood was like spent traveling to different cities and countries and uh, sitting at a chess board facing like, you know, sometimes people my age, but also sometimes people who were like 50 year old men. And and if you've ever played like competitive chess, it's literally like three hours um, of you sitting at the board and thinking about different scenarios and like moves and and just you know, just doing that throughout many years of my younger and life. there's no
0: one talking because you're focused?
1: Yeah. So if you've ever been, which I guess you haven't, most people haven't, a chess hall at these tournaments is completely... They have chess halls? <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's like a, a tournament. So there's many boards. You're okay. obviously sitting at your board facing your, your opponent. Um, and there's boards all around the room of, of games going on. Uh, and you have a clock. So like there, games are... are set to be within a certain time frame and you have only a certain amount of time on your clock but as the other person is thinking about their move on their clock you can walk around and look at other games but it has to be completely silent um and only certain people only the players are allowed in the actual hall um wow. with the exception of some tournaments where they'll let like family members and stuff but if it's a serious tournament it's like only players allowed in that space yeah
0: because you want any distract no noise or anything exactly yeah huh. so you yeah. grew up just like traveling around doing that was well that so that was up or?
1: until yeah so I started really young my sister is a couple years older than me so she, so she started and I started around the same time and I think I was like five or something when I started playing chess um like and
0: where? where did you grow up like what
1: I grew up in Toronto in Canada okay yeah, um, yeah. so I would go and I would go to tournaments for a couple years that we um, were in the surrounding areas. I would get lessons. Um, we'd also go to like the national championships and the world championships uh, at some points. And so I played until I was around 12. Um, but as you can imagine, like sitting in a chess board all day, uh, <laughs> like over weekends got old. And so I ended up doing other things like yeah. the rest of my youth. But I think that was like really foundational because you, when you spend hours at a board, like throughout many days or years of your of your childhood, you're thinking through. You're learning to problem solve. You're learning to scenario plan. Uh, you're also. Um, I think this was like an unintended uh, result. But like when you're a seven year old girl and you're uh, playing a chess game against a fifty year old, like you know man, it it provides you with like a certain level of confidence that you can like you can go and learn more and, you know, that, that like, you're not limited to like you, there's no like, there's no like labels, right? Like you're just a person. And if you go and learn stuff, if you spend the time reading your chess books or playing enough chess games that you can be just as good as anyone else. And so I think that provided me with like a level of, of appreciation for like putting time in and acquiring skills because Like, from a young age, that's what I was kind of not forced to do. My parents didn't force me to play chess, but, like, that was kind of the the entry point into that um, way of thinking. Did they and like it?
0: And they just were like, hey, check this thing out. It's fun. It was like family.
1: Yeah, I think it came from my dad. My dad never played it competitively, but he loved the game. Okay, uh, yeah. And they they put us in everything. So when I quit chess, I played soccer. I played, We did all types of sports. And so... Um, you can I quit think chess? It, <laughs> yeah well yeah because we were playing it so um consistently and like going to competition so i just said you know at some point that i didn't want to play anymore
0: do you ever um, beat any of those like 50 year old cranky dudes yeah seven and stuff
1: all the time Um, how did they deal
0: with it did you ever notice that like did you sort of read people to see like
1: yeah definitely i mean there was lots of older dudes who had like a great um you know great attitude, but there was definitely some games where you could tell that some people were pretty unhappy to be losing to like a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, but, like a
0: slice of humble pie just swooping in being like, <laughs> I know you've been doing this for like 40 years of your life, but hello. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, it's funny. So I quit when I was 12, but since I played very competitively as a kid, I was quite good. And I've completely stopped since I was 12. But I've probably played like less than 10 games since I quit. Really? So- the only time I ever play really these days is like every couple of years I'll be in some sort of social environment where there was is someone who's like being very um, aggressive about their, you know, like beating people will be at like a, a party or something and some, you know, some guy is going and like beating everyone. And if they're just beating someone and being like really nice about it, that's fine. But it's normally like someone who's got an ego and who's like, who's next, whatever. That's the only time I'll actually choose to play. Um, is to kind of,
0: and they have no idea. You have like ninety openings memorized, and you're ready to just like pounce
1: <laughs> Well, I mean, it's been it's been a long time since I like sure. played seriously, but yeah, like I I still remember the like gist of how to play, and I I guess I was a really good twelve year old. Now I'm like an average adult at chess.
0: <laughs> I'd say more than that. You probably get you got like your your purple belt and Brazilian jiu-jitsu of the chess of the chess world. You could probably beat most untrained people, you know. Who are just kind yeah. of just wheeling and dealing. Yeah,
1: uh, for anyone who's like never taken a lesson or something like that, then probably. But there's a lot of people who uh, who are now playing. It's fun. I I don't know if you know Indie Hackers, the guy uh, who founded it. Uh, Cortland messaged me. He's like, "Hey, I heard you used to play chess, so now we're just playing for fun, and it's kind of nice to, to be playing again."
0: So you are playing again, because I was wondering about that. If you haven't played for like your whole life since you were y- young, I was like, "Are you kind of just being like, nope, I'm good." definitely don't need to play or is it kind of coming back in
1: well it's uh i literally just started playing Corlin the other day and I haven't played in years but it's one of those things where like if you if you were like a like a major league baseball player uh and then you quit you kind of like you struggle to get back into it because you're like I used to be so good and now like I've forgotten like it doesn't feel as natural like I don't remember everything so I do want to play again because I I really enjoyed it and it was such a big part of my younger life. But uh, that's I really haven't played more than ten games in the last like decade.
0: Yeah, I mean that's how I feel about like a lot of things. Soccer for sure, mm-hmm. um, and even like some theater stuff where you're like, oh, you haven't really had time to do much, but if you had a chance, you just pick it up and crush it, kind of thing. Or not, you you'd crush it as couldn't be expected, perhaps you know. But yeah. It'd be, But so how did you go from doing all these things to like going to school? And I'm pretty sure I saw like chemical engineering or something on there. Mm -hmm.
1: So what was that?
0: You were just like, you wanted to be a chemist?
1: I don't, I don't know. I think it was like a lot of young, younger people who it's time to go to university. I remember Mm -hmm. at the time, like throughout high school, I really did love science and actually like pure sciences, chemistry, physics. Um, And I remember at least in, so I grew up in Canada, um, in Canada. there's like maybe five max 10 universities that are like just pretty sound and like if you get into one of those you're good Um, and so I applied to around five of them um, and I was just I I was just kind of picking and choosing random courses um, or or degrees but mostly in science Mm -hmm. and then my dad told me at the time he's like I know you really like science but um, you can basically take a lot of the same classes, learn a lot of the same stuff, but just have like a much more practical degree or hireable degree, (laughs) which is engineering. And I remember listening to him and being like, okay, whatever. So I applied to half pure sciences, half engineering courses. um, And then I ended up just going to one of the campuses and really loving it. And so that one just happened to be where I had applied to an engineering degree. So I was like, you know what, I'll listen to your dad. Like I, there really was not that much thought into it. You end up doing a chemical engineering degree. I really liked it, but uh, if you've ever done it, actually ended up being half chemical engineering, half like pure chemistry degree. Okay. You end up ever like studying anything in in the pure sciences. It's it's very interesting. I still love science, but the actual prospects out of it are pretty like grim. And mm. even if even if not even from like a pay uh, perspective, but from the perspective that For someone like me that like loves learning, loves like moving quickly, um, my prospects were like, go work on like an oil rig somewhere, uh, which you're doing the same thing every day. Right. Or you can go work in like some research lab, which I had actually done three summers of research throughout my degree uh, in like completely different scientific spaces. I felt like I was literally like, let me just like find a lab that moves quickly. So I was just like trying to find a way for science to work for me. And I just found it moved to yeah. like um, niche and, and like within, if you've ever done research, it's like, okay, you're not doing cancer research. You're doing like, you're doing research about a particular cell in a particular environment that does X and you're trying to right. like, it's, it's very specific. And There's so a
0: particular receptor and can we inhibit it? And just like,
1: Exactly. Like you're doing
0: it over and over and over again, and you have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah,
1: and it's it's so important, and I admire everyone who does that work. For sure. It's essential, but like I just found it way too slow moving. And so, what I did is I did my degree and I had done all of that research, and I was like, should I do, you know, a master's? And I was like, I can't do more research. So, <laughs> I took I, I took I completely pivoted, I went into consulting, hmm. um, like a c- kind of classic management consulting. Okay, role. yeah, yeah. Um, just in, I think this is true in the States as well, but a lot of, uh, consulting companies in Canada look for engineers cause I they think they're like decent at problem solving. So I sure. tried that out. That was also really fun, but that was like classic, like pretty bureaucratic, not the company itself that I worked for, but the clients we had worked for, yeah. um, or done work for. And so I just found that really slow. And that was also an in-person environment, um, which I did for like, I think within the first month of me working there, I was like, I didn't leave, but that's when I like knew I was like, I can't just like do this like
0: mm. same
1: cycle every single day of like- Long late-
0: commute downtown Toronto or something.
1: Exactly. Half your that's- life
0: is spent moving somewhere. Yeah.
1: Exactly. I had spent, yeah, every day, two hours in commute. Uh, and so it was like, same thing, like wake up 7am, get to work by nine, spend the whole day. It was consulting. So long hours, spend the whole day until- you know maybe like 7 on average at the yeah. office get home by 8 and then that's my day and i just remember thinking like you know a classic story but like there must be a better way and so <laughs> i looked for remote jobs um which led me to a growth role um on at like a tech company and cool. so that I sounds like
0: such me. a better fit for you for sure yeah
1: exactly and so i ended up doing that and it was awesome and i learned especially in the first like 6 months there probably the most in any like, uh, in any job that I've had. And so I just learned so much about marketing and, um, ended up doing that for that role for around a year and a half. And then ended up switching within the company to leading a larger team. I tried Hmm. that. I thought it was really fun in some ways, but I found after doing that for a year, year and a half, I was like, man, like I was managing a team of 20 and I was like, this is like, I want to get my hands. Wow.
0: That's typically too much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's was, like I mean,
0: not a good number.
1: There was, there was like report, it wasn't 20 direct reports. Oh, but it was okay. Like,
0: okay. Okay. There was, eight. I
1: think I maybe had like seven or eight direct reports. Yeah, and that's That makes sense. Them. Yeah. But yeah, it was like, obviously a great opportunity. I think I entered that role when I was like 24 or something and sure. I was managing people much older than me. And I was like, wow, this is such a great opportunity. And it was, but I was like, I want to get my hands dirty again. And yeah. I ended up switching to join the hustle around, Not a year ago, around the fall of last year. Um, And yeah, and so it's.
0: Tell me about that move. Like, talk about what The Hustle is, too, because I, like, literally bumped into it maybe. Was it? No, actually, I think I signed up for it after hearing your thing.
1: Oh, awesome. So, yeah, yeah, The Hustle is a company where most people know it for its email newsletter. So, it's an email newsletter about business and tech, it's been around for several years. Um, but it's, it's huge. It's over a million subscribers and one of the biggest newsletters around. Um, and the hustle around a year ago, before I joined, decided to start a new product, which is called trends, which is what I work on now. God. Um, and trends is like, I always like to kind of, uh, communicate it, uh, where the hustle is basically like, if you if your friend went and, uh, read all of the business and tech news for the day and came back to you and like no BS, no jargon, was just like, hey, these are like the three most important things that like happened today. Yeah. That's the newsletter. And then trends is like if that same friend went and went into the future like two to five years from now and told like saw the future in, in whatever it is and came back and told you like, hey, this is a trend you should think about or this is like something that's happening. That's what trends is. So we do reports and what we call signals on stuff that's emerging. Huh. Um and it's not like big like you know AI or blockchain. These are like very niche like uh products or data points where that people can actually enter uh even if you're like a solopreneur. Um right. and so it's meant for people who are yeah looking to start businesses, that's a big part of our user base, but also investors and just people who are kind of like I want to know what's gonna be happening or what, yeah. what's to come. So I was contacted by Sam, the founder there. Uh, when I was at my old role, and I had already been in that other job for three years um, across the two positions, and I was just like ready to get my hands dirty. And he told me, like, look, we started this new product. We need someone coming in who can kind of do everything and, and touch all parts of the product." And I just thought that was awesome to be, oh yeah, you know,
0: oh yeah,
1: all the product from the ground up. The team also, I I'd, I'd subscribed to the hustle for many years and loved their culture and their voice. So I was like, I was just sold. So, and, and it's turned out super how did, well.
0: how did he know you from that? Had you bumped into each other? Like, like? Is, no. by the way, is Hustle based in Toronto as well? Or like, how did you guys even connect?
1: No, the Hustle is um, based in SF in Austin, although- Oh, right, right. Um, obviously, everyone's working remotely now, but they, they also have, um, our content team has, has been fully remote even before the virus. Mm-hmm. And so, no, he actually, interestingly enough, in 2019, I started my own personal blog, which- Um, I just did for myself, not to make money or anything like that, but somehow some of the articles on there ended up trending on Hacker News and then getting like blown up. And one of them uh, was an article that I guess, I'm not sure how actually Sam heard about me initially, because they reached out before this article. um, And then he reached out after seeing a VC tweet about it. and, And was just basically like, hey, like, how can we get you on the team? And that was the perfect timing when I was already kind of ready to to leave my current role and um trends was just kind of getting started so it was yeah it was pretty cool to have just like an article that i wrote um for no purpose really get me some actual work
0: yeah and like cool like serendipity and coincidence that all these things sort of collided yeah uh, we put you where you're at now so so yeah so you're just like crushing it um uh, and doing the trends it, by the way how do i sign up for the trend thing
1: so if you just go to trends.co, um, you can oh, see cool. like what we offer. And then we do uh, a $1 trial for people for two weeks. So anyone can sign up for a dollar. They get to see the whole product for those two weeks. And then uh, from there, we only do yearly pricing and it's
0: $2.99. Interesting, cool. Mm-hmm. Starting, my, starting my trial.
1: Awesome. Oh, uh, well,
0: I can't do it now. I have to do billing information. But um, yeah, okay, sweet. Okay, so wow. Um, if you, hypothetical for you, Mm-hmm. Um, I may or may not have a time machine in Nashville, New Hampshire right here. Can't use it now because of COVID. But let's say, you know, things loosen up a little bit like we we're talking about. You use my time machine. You go back in time and you talk to yourself right at the beginning of your career. Let's say you just graduated your undergrad. What kind of things would you tell yourself? What kind of advice would you give yourself? What would you say?
1: Well, yeah, I think just like a lot of other people who are at that age, I was really like lost and trying to find like an answer to say yeah. like oh this is what you should be doing um and now i've as you've seen like i've just kind of like i don't know if fumbled is the right way to put it but i've just kind of like fallen into different paths and i've tried to be very thoughtful about it yeah. but my point is that like you even if you wanted to you cannot predict what will interest you in the future and i actually think that's a good thing if you can't because you should be constantly like learning new things and like trying to uh, incorporate or, or open yourself up to, to new opportunities or industries or um, people. And if you are doing that, there's no way that as of today, you can tell what, like, what your interests or your ambitions will be even two years from now. And so what I would say to my older self and to, to even myself today is just to like focus on On the learning or like the process focus on what you enjoy today really focus on not just learning but also like executing like being creative And, and like in 2018 I taught myself to code and that has been by far the the most influential year of my life because I taught myself to code I then could go create stuff the stuff I created ended up being inspiration for my blog which has now gotten me you know a job and so um I think it's really important for people not just to learn, but to create. And so that's what I would tell myself back then. I spent four years doing a degree in chemical engineering because I thought that was of interest to me. Uh, But instead I would have said, maybe still do a degree, but as you're doing a degree, go learn some marketing, go start your own newsletter, go start a blog, just do stuff, like create stuff. um, And even if it fails, like that's okay. And the other thing I would tell myself back then is that I had this very strange uh, view of, of success and f- in, from many different standpoints, but like one of them just being that like I would be successful if I go and went and started a billion dollar company. And now I actually think that is like it one form of success, but not the type of success that I'm personally True. looking for. And so True. just to, to go and like actively seek out, read about people, who have have uh, like gotten their or, or developed their own sense of success, right? And read about those people, why they're happy um, versus I think right now a lot of people read just like media headlines, whatever X company raising, you know, fifty million dollars and that being success. And so I think it took me a while and a and a lot of luck to end up kind of intersecting with a lot of different industries to see that there's there's just so much more out there but if i could tell myself that back then to say hey go go just explore go read about a bunch of different things go learn about a bunch of different things go experiment and don't focus on what you think the future should hold because it's actually like impossible to determine that even for yourself
0: right um wow Wow. I mean, the idea of exploring and just going and trying things out and giving yourself permission to like, not even know, and let's go find mm-hmm. out, but you got to expose yourself to stuff that makes, makes total sense. And to your point about like everyone, sometimes we have our these like wacky definitions of what we need to ha- be true in order to feel successful or to yeah. feel connected or to not feel alone or, and then we have these weird definitions. And until we go in there and like pick them apart and like, huh. Okay, so anything less than a billion dollars and I'm a failure, I should probably re-examine that. And then you know, knowing what you know about yourself now and what I know about you and where I'm at too, a billion-dollar company, actually managing that is much more like your management consulting that you were doing earlier where it's like nothing moves quickly. It's mm-hmm. very slow. It's very political, very bureaucratic. The startup where you can wear multiple hats, I mean, that, that's its own experience right there.
1: Yeah, and so that's a great point. And I think one thing that's important that I recognize just by doing this accidentally is that people shouldn't be in search of like what they, they, sh- they want their future to be, but more so testing to find out what they don't want their future to be. So, for huh. example, what I mean by that is like, you people could have, I could have accidentally done this, spent 10, 20 years trying to get into an executive position because I thought that that would make me happy and, you know, like I would just spend my lifetime doing that and then I would get there and be unhappy. So as much as you can early on in your career, try to find out what you don't want. Right. And so for me, I got very lucky to be in that leadership position quite young, but I'm almost now, I I know that that is not what I want. And so I can, I can now spend my life with clarity, chasing things, new things outside of that, and, and so I think it's actually important to, to try to, especially early on, experiment. There's this really good book called Algorithms to Live By, um, mm-hmm. which talks about basically using computer science principles to actually have like, make better decisions. But one of those um, principles that they talk about is this concept of exploring and exploiting. And during early parts of your life, you need to explore so that you get enough data so that for the rest of your life, you can exploit things That are more beneficial to you instead of the other way around where you're like going down one path and then later in life you find out that that's not what you actually wanted
0: of course correct yeah totally really interesting about the exclusions i think we're always trying to go for the inclusions and figure out what we want to keep but to your point with the going for the no finding the no's, like i do not sometimes those are more black and white like i really don't want i hate doing this good Mm -hmm. great yeah, exactly. Try to find a job where you never do that. That's great. But sometimes with the, with the well, I kind of like that. You know, I, I, I guess I kind of like doing this sort of, you know, like that's not a good place to live either because that's, that's basically totally. a no, you just don't really know yet. But the no is if they can be nice and sharp, like I hate that. Good. Don't ever do that again. That's awesome. Exactly.
1: And I think people should be more ruthless, like you're saying about yeah. turning uh, maybe into a no. Because there's just, man, there's so many opportunities out there. That's another thing I tell myself when I'm younger is that like, when you're younger, and you come from a place of less experience, you think you have like X amount of opportunities, and you really have X times like a 1000 of Mm. those opportunities. Like it's, there's amazing how many opportunities exist, and also opportunities that you can create. And so in With that in mind, you need to remove those like maybes or those like, I kind of don't mind this. That's the type of job that you end up in for eight years. And then you realize like, damn, like that was just like, okay. So
0: yeah. And there's that really cool one that was waiting for you that never got filled.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So turning more of those into no's and iterating as much as possible when you're younger.
0: Right, right. Um, Last question for you was about the travel because I know you traveled a lot. When mm-hmm. you were younger, and probably uh, actually, you've traveled a lot. Anyways, just sort of this nomadic. Any favorite places? Because tell us more about that. You like? Have you do you switch a lot of locations? Probably a little bit challenging now, but tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Canada and didn't travel much at all, minus a couple chess tournaments when I was younger. But I really uh, didn't. I like our family didn't travel a ton uh growing up, and so in uh university, I did a year of exchange, and that was like really kind of like completely opened me up to like oh my gosh I love this I spent wow, a year where? in Sweden um oh, and but you know within Europe it's so easy to travel or it was at the time yeah. so I during that year went to like 20 or so countries and was just like wow this is awesome and so I did that my third year of university and I came back and I finished university and did that year of of consulting but that was like one of the reasons that I knew like very early on in consulting that that like that wheel was not what i wanted to be on and so i just i remember that was like one of the impetuses of me wanting to find a remote job was like i want to get back on the road i really don't want to be living in toronto great city for some people i grew up there so i was kind of sick of it um but i (laughs) (laughs) i i ended up traveling throughout uh i got the remote job full remote job in 2016 from 2016 basically up until today but it was quick at first where like when I was first doing it I was really excited and I was like I want to go everywhere so I'd go somewhere and spend a couple weeks there and then go another place and spend a couple weeks there and I'm going basically well to like basically all the continents except uh obviously Antarctica
0: not yet you'll get there
1: (laughs) yeah throughout that time but over the last like two years or so I've slowed down and spent more so like if I go somewhere it'll be a couple months ideally just because you know it's it's actually not that enjoyable to constantly be on the road. Mm. Um, people, as we were talking about before, they crave community. They crave that yeah. interaction. You crave like habits and routine in many ways. And so I've slowed down, and I spent a lot of the last couple of years in Bali. I know it's like a classic nomad spot, but it was actually like I I loved it there. Wow. Um, and then actually it was funny, or I don't know if funny is the right term for it, but I was I had already planned to kind of slow down and settle more over here in uh, San Diego but I had come here like right before the pandemic I got here in like March oh jeez I want to say like March 3rd or something and stuff shut down mid-month and it's funny because I came here and I was like you know what I'm finally settling down like I'm gonna establish a community here I'm gonna have like my (laughs) co-working and my gym and like all this stuff and then (laughs) none of that happened of course um because of the the pandemic but hopefully once that subsides i'll have more of like a a stable base
0: do you think you're gonna stay you said san diego do you think you'll kick around or have you gotten kind of stir crazy like now you're cooped up you're like Um, somewhere warm and tropical
1: well it's pretty warm here i'm by the beach but um i i would love to stay here the the pending thing is that i'm not american so i we need to figure out visas but all right um yeah if I if I can stay legally then I'll be staying for for a while I think
0: nice nice yeah. well this has been fun like what a yeah. cool conversation about the future and hearing your story and everything thank you so much for coming on here
1: yeah thanks so much for having me and the thoughtful questions I don't
0: know if you noticed the time just kind of just like <laughs> I
1: know uh, right
0: it's been awesome. And for those listening, if you've learned something, and I know you have, I freaking know you have, because I literally have two pages of notes over here. Back, <laughs> then uh, share this with someone, be a thought leader, but don't just share it. Put your own commentary in it, like LinkedIn. Like this is what I learned from it. This is the takeaways I got from Steph. Share that, tag people, we'll retweet you, we'll reshare you. Um, and that's how you be a thought leader. One person, nine people, 87 people, it doesn't even matter. Just like get the content out and share that. Definitely check out the hustle and the trend. Um, Steph, where are some of the links? How can we connect with you? Um, Where do we meet?
1: Yeah, so you can find me specifically at my site, which is stephsmith.io, and my blog is blog.stephsmith.io, and then I'm pretty active on Twitter, so if you want to DM me, my DMs are open, and my handle is stephsmithio.
0: Awesome. Sweet. Sweet. There it is. Thank you again. We'll have to have you come back on afterward and give us some more predictions later on for like 2020, 2021 and beyond.
1: (laughs) Cool. Yeah, that sounds great.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, have a good one. And for those listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll catch you all next time.